Listener Production. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, the forensic science which is helping solve Australia's cold cases. You might hit the head and you will have a perfect depressed fracture that matches exactly the dimensions of the hammer. You'll then hit that same person again with the hammer and there'll be no evidence on the bone at all. Bone is not guaranteed to respond the same every single time. Dr Samantha Robotham is an anthropologist at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Through her career, she spent much of her time researching and investigating cold cases where bones have been found and the identity of the remains is difficult to uncover. That's when we're making our interpretations about if changes to the skeleton look like they're the result of the environment or are they the result of trauma that actually occurred close to the time that they did die. This work is crucial in identifying victims, convicting offenders and providing answers to the families of missing persons. That's where we'll kick off the conversation with Sam, diving into the nitty-gritty of anthropology and what actually happens when bones are found and what they tell us. So back on Christmas Day 2017, some snorkelers were out in Sandy Point. They noticed an almost complete articulated skeleton lying on the seafloor. So that preservation is really quite extraordinary. In a lot of these types of cases, what you normally see are, you know, one or two skeletal elements wash up on the beach or maybe maybe the foot, for example, if they're still articulated. But in this case, this individual was complete and he was just lying on the seafloor um, in a supine position, so facing, facing upwards. So in that case... He was an unknown individual, so there was no context. No one was expecting to find this person, so we had no idea who they might be in terms of their identity. So the first thing that we did for the anthropology examination was create that biological profile. So look at that information around giving some biological parameters on who the person might be, really just to help narrow down our list of long-term missing persons that might match to those remains. So... Um, A couple of days after he was found, I did my examination um, and based on the the morphology of his skull, so looking at various features across his skull, I could say that he was of European ancestry. And then I looked at morphological features of his pelvis and also the skull to say that he was biologically male. And then I measured uh, some of his long bones to work out how tall he would have been. Um, So he was around 170 centimetres tall, and then his age. So I looked at a number of different indicators that says that the bone has started to deteriorate to suggest what his age range would be. So after we sort of early 20s, mid 20s, after that point, we start deteriorating. So I just look at the rate of deterioration to estimate what his age would have been during life. So we started, so we did those four biological features first. And so with that criteria, so male, 
mid-20s to early 30s European ancestry, about 170 centimetres tall, we really just reached dead ends. There was no no match um, or no sort of narrowed down list of potential individuals that the remains might have belonged to that were on the missing persons list. We took a DNA sample and that DNA was uploaded to our various DNA databases and there was no match on any of those databases. So for several years, um, he remained what we call an unidentified human remain. So we've got several of those types of cases in Victoria that are called UHRs, Unidentified Human Remains. And he he remained uh, with us in our care, but he was still unidentified. So they don't, they're not buried until they're identified? Uh, in some cases. So in some cases, we try to keep the remains with us because, you know, potentially other scientific testings might become available. And so we can then re-access the remains. Um, in other cases, especially when you have a recently deceased individual, so you have a fresh body, essentially, we try to bury those those cases in graves where we know exactly where they are so that, you know, should identification one day be possible, then we can go back and exhume them. But it's also the most respectful thing to do is is to bury them. So if we hadn't been able to identify this particular individual, eventually he would have also been buried. So how did you identify him? The next step that we looked at, or potentially other types of scientific methods, we first looked at uh, radiocarbon. So uh, some work was done by one of the PhD students at the Institute who measured the amount of carbon that was left in his bone. Um, And basically that said that he lived somewhere before 1940. Um, So we knew that he wasn't recent um, to begin with. We also knew he was of European ancestry. So he likely wasn't, he likely wasn't any older than European um, colonization. So the late 1700s. So that kind of gave us a a closer window in terms of we were looking at someone who was a historic uh, case. And then our molecular biology department did some really incredible work in forensic investigative genetic genealogy. So basically they took his DNA and they traced back through genetically through a number of different family lines to look at who might have the same DNA or similar, similar parts of the DNA as our individual And they found a family who was in Gippsland, so in the area uh, where this individual was recovered from. Um, They found the grand niece of someone called Christopher Moore. Um, So they contacted the grand niece of Christopher Moore. And based on circumstantial data, it certainly looked like the remains were a match to Christopher Moore. So they asked the grandniece for if she would be willing to provide a DNA sample, which she very generously did, and then we could compare her DNA to the DNA of the skeleton to formally identify him. So he was formally identified as Christopher Moore. He died in December 1928 from drowning in Waratah Bay. So 95 years later, he could go home. So in terms of reality versus fiction, Mm -hmm. if you hear that there is a body found, a skeletonised body found, who calls you and what do you do when you get the call? Yes, so most of the time those calls will come directly from the police. Um, So if if a member of the public, for example, will come across human skeletal remains, if they're bushwalking or something like that, if a member of the public finds remains, they tend to call the police first. So it'll be the police that will contact us to say, you know, we have remains, we believe they're human, can we go and attend the scene? Um, so in those cases, the first thing that we actually do, though, is 
is actually check that the remains are human to begin with. So we do have quite a lot of cases um, where you know members of the public will find bones, but they're not actually human bones. So when you go, what do you take with you to that scene initially? What's your kit or your bag contain? It will depend a little bit on the scene if we have buried remains versus if we have remains that are on the surface. Major crime scene will always come to each of these cases as well because the scene does just belong to the police officer. So the types of material that I take to the scene, if they're buried remains, I'll take some of our archaeology gear. So that will be things like sieves, tarps, trowels, buckets, um, shovels, occasionally a paintbrush, depends on the depends on the context of the remains, tape measures, all that type of standard archaeology gear that we use. In cases where the remains are on the surface, most of the time we just take markers in order to note each of the bones, bags, so we'll often transport remains, the skeletonized remains in paper bags. They're quite good. They allow the bones to breathe. So we take that type of transport gear. We always take our personal protective equipment as well. Sometimes we'll take reference material with us, but not too often. But that's generally most of the gear we actually use. Why do bones need to breathe? That's a very good question. So the bones are organic. And when we have bones that are still what we call wet, so they're still relatively fresh, they're not completely dried out, we want them to be able to breathe so that they don't absorb too much moisture and essentially go mouldy as well. So we want bones to be able to breathe when they're relatively fresh. So how fresh are you talking? It's a very good question because the question around bones, how long are they fresh and how long is a bone technically organic or still wet, is almost the most complicated question you can actually ask in anthropology. So when we, at the time that we die, our bones are, are living, like they are, they are what we call wet, they're fresh, they're organic, they're responding as if we're still alive. Once we start that decomposition process, our bone to begin with is still organic. So our bone is still wet, it's still fresh. It can actually take, in some cases, months, in some cases, years, for the bone to actually completely dry out. Even when you've all the soft tissue is decomposed and you just have the skeletal remains left, they might still have some organic content to them. And so that process will vary by each case because there's so many different variables that will have an effect on it. So, you know, the environment that you're, if you're buried versus if you're on the surface, your age, sex, uh, what drugs you might have in your system, all of those things that affect the decomposition process will also affect, you know, ultimately how long our bones stay organic before they start to dry out. As long as they're still organic or still have those wet properties, that bone will respond as if the person was living. So that becomes the most complicated part of anthropology because we will look at this bone and say, you know, we might have a trauma, for example, or, or a defect on that bone. And we'll look at that and say, well, we have this defect where the bone is still wet. So it could have occurred at the time the person died, or it could have occurred weeks, months, potentially even years after the person died. So everyone dries out at different rates. And so we can't give an exact number for the time period. So it's really quite a complicated area of anthropology. So how does your process differ if you have somebody on top of the ground versus someone buried? Individuals who are buried will typically decompose slower, and they'll also have 
or in most cases, they'll have a lot less environmental factors that are affecting the preservation of the body. So remains that are on the surface, in a lot of cases, we see scavenging because those remains are, are easily accessible to, to different animals. So as soon as you start that scavenging process, you know, the remains become disarticulated. So we have small sections spread over large distances. So it can become quite complicated to recover all of the elements of the body. Insects can also reach the body a lot quicker than if someone was buried. So again, it just helps speed up the decomposition process and someone will become skeletonized relatively quicker than if they were buried. In burials, most of the burials we see here, or in a forensic context at least, are relatively shallow. People don't tend to want to dig any more than they have to dig. Um, so a lot of our burials are sort of about 50 centimetres, maybe a metre maximum type depth. So we're not talking enormous depths for, for burial, like not metres under the ground. But in those cases where you're buried sort of 50 centimetres or a metre below, you have all of that protection from the, the soil around you to stop a lot of that insect activity, animal activity, sun, wind, rain, all of those factors that those just environmental exposures, um, you don't have most of those to worry about. So the decomposition process is a lot slower and quite different for when you're buried versus on the surface. So you're at the scene. You've got your sieves, your brush, um, more brushes, <laughs> whatever you need. A few paintbrushes. The stereotypical archaeologist. Where do you begin on the body and how far out do you have a perimeter? Where do you start and what do you start cordoning off? What do you focus on first? What's your priority? Most of the time, um, the priority is actually to identify the grave to begin with, um, which in many cases isn't as simple as it sounds. If you've got several years that have gone by since the individual was buried, it can actually be quite complex to find the actual grave again. So the first component is always really desktop-based. And what we're looking at is you know, information that might indicate exactly where the person was buried, whether that's witness statements or confessions or any of that type of investigative information. We then might also do various types of remote sensing or geophysical surveying to look at what is below the soil to see if we can identify what we call an anomaly. So basically that there is a hole in the ground. At some point, someone has dug a hole. Whether or not that has a body in it is, we don't know that until we actually excavate. But what we're looking for are those changes in the landscape. So we call them anomalies. So we do all of that search work first. Sometimes we'll do work on the ground as well. So it might be line searches, looking for vegetation changes, anything like that, that can help indicate there might be a, an anomaly in the, underneath the ground. Once we've identified an anomaly and we think there's potentially a reason that this might be a burial, it might be vegetation changes, soil changes, something like that, we will then uh, excavate that anomaly. What we normally do is a cross-section because we're not entirely convinced yet that it's a burial. We'll actually start in the mid-section of that anomaly and we'll excavate down. So then using archaeology principles, we excavate through the naturally occurring layers in the soil and we look at different soil changes. And what we're really looking for is a soil change that indicates that there's been a new hole dug there. So essentially, any time you go to dig a hole anywhere in the environment, what you're doing is you're digging through the naturally occurring layers of sediment. And when you dig all of that soil up and you place it on the, on the surface, 
that's what we call the spoil, the soil that's been removed from a hole, you've mixed all of those layers together. So when you go to put that soil back in the ground, you've essentially created an entirely new layer of sediment. So it has a different colour and a different texture and it actually feels quite loose compared to the natural layers. So when we have these anomalies, we're digging down to find that different soil colour change and texture to indicate that there's actually been a hole dug at that particular point in time. When you do get down to that, if it was raining, for example, would you come back another day or would you still persist? Definitely in the not. <laughs> no, always this is whatever the weather is. We're just sometimes we get lucky and it's a nice sunny day. Sometimes it's very cold, very wet, and very overcast. But no matter what the weather is, I mean, these are situations that we're always doing in collaboration with the police. So, you know, a lot of people have invested their time and effort. Um, a lot of these types of cases are quite urgent in terms of the recovery. So no matter what the weather is, we're always out there um, and it, it doesn't really seem to bother anyone. So when you actually do get down to starting finding bones, do you remove them? Do you keep going? Do you remove one at a time or do you, and then reconstruct it? Or do you actually try and uncover as much of the skeleton as you can in situ in, in where it's found? So what we'll try to do is once we, so we've done our half section, we've identified our grave cut. Once we, we know we're happy this is our, our grave, um, we will excavate the entire grave area and we'll go down in our slow layers, depends on obviously how deep the remains are. Um, as I said before, most of our burials are fairly shallow and by the time you then have the individual placed in those shallow graves, you often only have about you know, 20 centimetres to dig through before you start uncovering human remains. So we'll excavate down normally about you know 10 centimetre layers or so and you want to uncover the entire individual because that shows a lot of important information about how they were placed in that grave um, and you know potentially evidence of insect activity or evidence of clothing or if something else has been placed in with the body. You know in some cases for example if someone has been shot before they've been buried then you want to understand where the body was relative to where the bullet might now be in the grave. So all of that contextual information about how the person sits within the burial and then within the broader landscape um, is quite important information to help in the interpretation of what happened to them. So we excavate down until the entire body is exposed, whether they're um, decomposed or skeletonized, we'll excavate the, the full body, document that, that position, all of those artefacts, all of that detail, um, and then it'll be a process of removing the complete body. So if we are, if the individual is skeletonized, then it will be removing single skeletal elements at a time and labeling and bagging them. If they're still articulated, so there's still soft tissue and then in late stages of decomposition, sometimes we can remove the entire body in one go essentially and we'll place them in a body bag. So it just depends on the preservation how long would that process of actually digging down, I imagine incredibly gently, how long does that process generally take? Are we talking an hour, 10 hours? It's quite different uh, in a forensic context than it is to an archaeology context. So when I used to work as an archaeologist, we would probably spend about two days excavating a, a single burial or a clandestine grave. And that's really because the level of detail is so meticulous and the recording is, is incredibly detailed. In forensic context, we don't necessarily have those kinds of time parameters, nor are the questions that are being asked 
actually relevant to spend that level of detail of, of meticulous recording. Um, so normally we will spend a day. It, typically those types of cases uh, we can complete in a day. How were the remains transported to keep them from breaking or being damaged any further? So if they are skeletonized, then they can be quite fragile. So what we always like to do is to bubble wrap the head or the skull. It helps keep the teeth in their position. We have very fragile facial bones. We want to keep those as protected as we can. Often the skull can be quite important if we're, if we're looking at trauma or taphonomic changes. So we often bubble wrap the skull. Depending on how poorly preserved the rest of the remains are, they can either go in the paper bags, which are then all put together in a body bag, or we might bubble wrap certain elements if they're very fragile and then place them in the paper bag, then in the body bag. And then that body bag is transferred to the institute. And then once at the institute, what happens then? So then uh, in collaboration with the forensic pathologist for the case, uh, we will examine those remains. So you might have cases that will be, question might be asked, you know, who is this individual if we don't know to begin with? So in those cases, the anthropology examination will be conducting what we call a biological profile. So we're estimating that person's age at death and their sex and their ancestral origins and how tall they were during life. So there are four key biological parameters. So in some cases, we'll, our examination will look at that information. In other cases, the questions that were asked might be just around what happened to that person. If they already know or have a belief to be identity, then they're not necessarily interested in a biological profile and they'll ask questions around what happened to the person. So in those cases, our work is focused around describing the preservation of the remains and looking at changes to the skeleton. So that's when we're making our interpretations about if changes to the skeleton look like they're the result of the environment. And so taphonomic changes and things that have occurred after the person died, or are they the result of trauma that actually occurred close to the time that they did die? And what sort of signs of trauma are you looking for? So the changes to the skeleton from trauma, they've occurred when the bone is, is wet in that perimortem period, that fresh organic bone that we've talked about before. Um, and so we're looking at how the bone has responded to different impacts. So if you have a, a blunt impact to the body, how does the bone respond and ultimately how does it fracture under that type of load? And the same for sharp force trauma. We'll see very different features if it's a sharp impact versus if it's a blunt impact. And then in our cases of what we call high-velocity projectiles, um, all different types of, of gunshots, the impact that they have on the skeleton looks very different again. So we look at the different types of trauma, the different mechanisms, and the features that we see on the skeleton, which ones do they correlate with? If you have a fractured skull and the skull has been fragmented, for example, where do you begin trying to put that back together and then establish what is natural versus what is act, um, deliberate trauma or external trauma? In those types of cases where you've got fragmentation, so let's say the skull was fragmented into 20 or 30 pieces just, and we don't know if that fragmentation is just naturally occurring from, from the environment or if perhaps there was a gunshot first or a, a blunt force impact, any question like that, the first thing that we should always be doing is to reconstruct the bones. So you don't really know what you're looking at until you can actually reconstruct and see what the skull looks like in its entirety. 
So we'll go through that reconstruction process. So we're essentially like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. We're piecing back each of the bones together and we're gluing them together so that we then basically have the skull again. What that allows us to do is to then see how how those fractures have behaved and if those fractures have occurred when the bone was still fresh or still wet, the fractures are different. If they fractured after the bone was dried out, they will look quite different. So we can, based on the shape and features of the fracture, we'll say if it occurred in the perimortem period or if it was environmental taphonomic damage that occurred after death. In terms of differentiating features versus a blow to the head, are you looking at indentation versus, for example, falling onto a flat surface, the head hitting a flat surface versus being impacted with an object? Are you likely to see different sorts of injuries on the bone that may help establish whether this was an accidental fall, for example, in the bush from a cliff or where there was actually a trauma to the head itself? So in both of those types of cases, what we're talking about is a blunt force event. So falling is a blunt force. When we're impacting the ground, that's a blunt object. Often what we see when we impact the ground from a fall, so we're impacting a fairly broad, relatively flat surface. That can obviously change a little bit depending on the environment, but generally speaking, a flat surface. So what we do see is a lot of linear fractures um, occur from that type of broad, flat impact. Um, And we see a lot of the sutures in our skull separating, so diastatic fractures as well. So the skull as an adult is essentially essentially two bones. We have the cranium, which is almost all of our skull, and then we have our mandible, which is just our lower jaw. When we're children, that cranium is actually a whole number of different individual bones. So when we're born, we have quite small bones that are starting to grow, and we need them to be still growing because obviously our brains are growing. So our skull can't be fused together yet because we need that growth and development for our brain. Once our brain's finished growing, the bones of our skull will then finish growing with it. And so they will then fuse together and form one one unified structure. So the way that the skull then responds in trauma, because all of the bones are fused together, and they're fused together through what we call our sutures, on impact, they all respond together. So we look at the cranium as if it's one skeletal element, because it will respond to, to trauma as a single skeletal element. So in those cases of falls, when you have a, when your head, for example, might hit the ground, that force and energy from the impact that can radiate up through the entire cranium. It won't necessarily just traumatize the bone that it was, that impacted the ground because those bones are linked together. In children, when those bones are not linked together, you often see that the areas of the trauma where the bone has impacted the ground tends to be the area that is traumatized. There is still a little bit of transitioning forces across the skull, but not the same as what we see in adults. So then versus a blunt force trauma to the skull, what differences may you determine? So in those falls, as we talked about, there's always typically a fairly broad flat surface. In assaults, it really depends on the type of implement that's been used. If an implement is broad and flat, 
something like a frying pan, for example, broad and flat. If you were hit with a frying pan, that surface implement is the same type of surface that you would see in a fall. So the fractures would be quite similar. Um, if you're hit with something much more focal, so something like a hammer, for example, you know, it's a, quite a defined focal area, but it's still blunt in terms of the shape of the implement. So it's still a blunt impact. That type of focal impact can cause what we call a depressed fracture. Depressed fractures are quite unique in the sense they're the only type of fracture that can actually tell you the exact point of impact for where an, an implement uh, impacted the bone. In all of our other types of fractures, whether they're linear or diastatic or you've got multiple fractures, it can be very difficult to work out the exact point of impact. So depressed fractures are really quite special in the sense that we can we can say where the point of impact occurred. And logically, if you were to fall onto a flat surface, you wouldn't expect to see a depressed fracture. That's really interesting. So the moment you see a depressed fracture, you're automatically suspicious that this was a trauma that was in was caused by someone else by a blunt force object. Most of the time, yes. I mean, there's always an exception to the rule. Um, you know, for example, if you fell over and there happened to be a rock and you hit on the edge of a rock, that would that would cause a depressed fracture. But that's a pretty exceptional type of circumstance. So in principle, yes, it tells you about the shape or the size of the surface that was impacted. So it, it can help for that differentiation. And possibly help identify the weapon, the type of weapon? Yes. In some cases... Um, so not so much in Australia, but in other parts of the world, anthropologists do make interpretations about the type of implement that, that caused that depressed fracture. I mean, that's not part of our practice here. So that level of tool interpretation is what's considered beyond our area of expertise. So we'll, we'll make documents about the size of the depressed fracture. And then, for example, the police might, um, might look at various implements that, have, that were in the house or at the scene or something like that. And their toolmark experts could then do that work to, to do that um, matching up. Because force is dissipated, does that mean you're un- that's why you're unable to say this was definitely a hammer because of the circumference? And I imagine it then depends too on the force with which they were hit the angle, um, the angles, yep. There's, what yeah. they were doing when they were hit. Exactly. There's a lot of different, like bone is very complicated and there's a lot of different factors that can affect it. You know, in some cases you might, with a hammer, for example, you might hit the head and you will have a perfect depressed fracture that matches exactly the dimensions of the hammer. You'll then hit that same person again with the hammer and there'll be no evidence on the bone at all. And then you might hit them again and you'll see half of a little curve of a depressed fracture. Bone, bone is not guaranteed to respond the same every single time. So even when we do see the perfect depressed fracture from the hammer, for example, in blunt force trauma, and it, it's a fairly complicated principle, but in blunt force trauma, what happens is our bones go through what we call plastic deformation. So plastic deformation means that the force hitting the bone has been slow enough that the bone has been able to slowly respond to that load. Plastic deformation can actually alter the shape of the bone a little bit. So it becomes slightly more complicated to give exact dimensions because of plastic deformation. So it's it's actually quite, quite tricky, which is why we don't make that interpretation. We'll take our measurements and we'll describe and we'll make those broad conclusions, but the, the tool interpretation 
would then have to be for a toolmark expert if they wanted to go that far in an interpretation. We often hear too in, in television shows and in, in crime fiction um, that you can calculate a stabbing, whether it was a serrated edged knife or a straight knife or a boning knife or whatever. Is that all fallacy? No, there is there is a lot of truth behind that. Um, so especially, I can obviously only speak from the, the bone side of it, but we can see those differences in the bone. Of course, that's assuming that the sharp force injury has actually affected bone to begin with. So you could you can, of course, you know, you could stab someone 20 times and there'd be no evidence on the skeleton. But in cases where you actually have the sharp force impact on the bone, we look at what we call the kerf wall and the kerf floor. So it's basically the, the markings of where the bone has projected, or the, the knife, for example, has projected into the bone. And we look at the shape of that to help say if it's serrated like a saw where you've got little teeth because you'll see those little teeth pulling on the bone and causing like striations through the bone. So lots of little linear lines. Or if it's a knife, for example, it'll be quite a smooth V-shape, uh, deep cut. So the bone features look very different if it's a knife versus if it's a saw. Again, we wouldn't interpret the exact knife, but we could say, you know, there's a V-shaped smooth depression characteristic of a knife rather than a saw for example, or if we might see evidence of those little teeth, then we can say those features are characteristic of a saw rather than a knife. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr Sam Robotham. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. <laughs>